Thank you for pressing play on episode 112 of A-Sides. I'm Andy, and this is my first solo episode of 2023. I'm excited to speak with Patrick Kennison of Heaven Below and Lita Ford for this episode. I've been trying to set it up over the last year or so through Facebook messages and Instagram messages, but sometimes people are busy. He's got a lot of projects going on between Lita Ford his own band also performing acoustic dates with his wife, Nikki Stringfield. So the guy's kind of hard to nail down, but finally it was worth it. And I hope you enjoy this episode as we dive into several of his favorite cover songs and some songs that he's recorded as well. So hopefully you enjoy episode 112 of A-Sides with Patrick Kennison. Look, it's rock and roll! And cue music. Grease is the best, man. Grease is the best. I'm telling you. Black masses, mutilations, mutilations. The incubus, the succubus. I'm telling you. Once they get in here, it's over, pal. Let's do this. Yeah. So, Patrick, you had recently posted online on social media your top five covers. They weren't even just metal songs. They were covers overall. I thought I'd kind of break those down with you and then maybe go into some of your favorite bands that maybe you've covered through your various projects as well. Absolutely. Yeah, hell yeah. Let's just jump in there. So the first one you had was Judas Priest, Green Man Alishi. Cause you're the green man Alishi with a two-pronged crown. All my dragon is up, all you're bringing is down. Yeah, metal classic. Yeah, I didn't realize that for a long time, but that was a Fleetwood Mac song. Dude, I had no idea. I've been into Judas Priest since I was seven years old. I didn't know till I was an adult that that was a somebody older than me said, that's a Fleetwood Mac song. So, of course, I went and listened to the Fleetwood Mac one. It was cool, but it was hippie, psychedelic. Not that I'm young, but it sounded old. It didn't sound like what Judas Priest did. So I was like, okay, Priest was way ahead of their time. They must have heard the chord progression, the vibe, and turned it into their own, obviously. So I think when it's a great cover, it sounds like your own. It doesn't sound like you're covering anything. It sounds like you wrote the song, even though you didn't. Oh, yeah. like I would definitely agree. I think they did make it their own. Absolutely. And that was the first Priest album I ever heard as a little kid. My older sister had Hellbent for Leather. I was seven years old, maybe eight, seven or eight years old. And that was the new Priest album at the time. And that was the first band I heard that I knew was heavy. Use the word heavy, because before that, I only knew Kiss and Cheap Trick and maybe ACDC or Aerosmith and Zeppelin. So the word heavy, I don't even know if I had the word metal yet. Heavy was the word, and Priest had that on that album way back then. So when you came across Priest, is that kind of like uh, the emoji where like the little head's getting blown up and there's the mushroom cloud? Is that what you were kind of like when you were seven? Absolutely. I had no idea. I didn't know why it sounded the way it did. I just knew that it did sound like that. And the vocals were so powerful and the drums were huge and the guitar was fast but clear. Yeah, game changer for my life right then and there. Awesome, man. And you're a huge Priest fan, aren't you? I would rank I would rank very high with the highest of Priest fans. How many times have you seen those guys? 
Oh, I think I've, I don't have a number, but I've seen them the most out of any band. My first Judas Priest concert, I wanted to go to Scream Me for Vengeance and Defenders, but my mom wouldn't let me go to concerts yet because she knew everybody was smoking weed because my older brothers and sisters went. And so I didn't get to see Priest until Fuel for Life, the Turbo Tour, had second row, mind-altering. And I've seen them on just about every tour since that 1986 Turbo Tour. So it must be in the teens or more. It must be, it could be 20-something times. I'm not sure. Holy shit. I think yeah, that's also oh, yeah. the same tour that the, uh, what is it, Heavy Metal Parking Lot was filmed too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's cla- <laughs> classic in its own right. Yeah. Another one you had listed on social media uh, was Jimi Hendrix, all along the watchtower. There must be some kind of way out of Yeah, that's another song that as a little kid, I didn't know that was a cover. I just knew I liked it, even though I considered it, you know, old hippie music, which it's not. But, you know, when you're a little kid and you only know cheap trick and kiss you don't understand i came to hear the bob dylan one much later as an adult and once again i was scratch my head and go wow he got that out of that song that man's a genius and he was hendrix was a genius way ahead of his time uh definitely better than the original so did hendrix end up influencing you too like when you jumped into uh playing guitar just being honest not at first because i started in the 80s when i was a little kid and Jimi hendrix was even though I liked all along the watchtower, it, it, I thought that was old pot smoking music. Once I got further into guitar, <laughs> once I got further into guitar and closer to songwriting and getting deeper into the instrument, then I realized he was amazing. I was like, Oh, you hear, are you experienced with reverse guitar and Hey Joe and all that? Yeah. As you come into your instrument, you suddenly realize that that guy was amazing. I didn't know that at first. It's kind of the same thing you just talking about the old hippie music. It kind of makes me think of like, well, you recently passed, but Jeff Beck, that's one guy that it took me like forever to get into. Yeah, same thing. I, I didn't know until I got on guitar and I started learning to solo. I was like, oh, this guy's amazing. His guitar is a voice all its own. Same thing. I didn't realize till I got on the instrument. So kudos to the people that recognized him without having to play an instrument. <laughs> I'm younger than you are, too. I was born in 84, so I feel like it's just harder to go back and kind of appreciate some of the older stuff because you're kind of getting assaulted by the newer stuff that's on the radio or, you know, whatever all your siblings are listening to. Yeah, that only happens at first. It happened to me also. I have six older brothers and sisters, and they all, most of them listen to hard rock and metal and stuff. So I was, I, I thought that, like, Led Zeppelin was cool. I liked them. But I didn't want to play guitar like him at first. I wanted to play Breaking the Law and Motley Crue and Metallica when I first got my guitar. And then you realize you grow into stuff and you go, holy crap, that is amazing. I didn't even know it. You know, I hear old songs today and I just go, wow, that's amazing that they could do that back then. I got another question about your covers that you had posted. Were those in any order or were they just ones that just kind of came to your mind? Yeah, yeah, they weren't in a special order. There was no sequence. That might have been a good idea. We could have done it in, in sequence of time. The next one that you had listed in your top five was Manfred Mann, Blinded by the Light. And that's another one, just like these other ones. I did not know for the longest time that that was the boss. 
Same here. I heard that as a little kid, probably around the time I was discovering who Judas Priest was. And I like the song. Um, it wasn't hard or heavy, but as a little kid, you know, you gravitate towards stuff like that. Once again, I was like, oh, that's a very interesting song. Just the way they wrote it. Come to find out it's a Bruce Springsteen song and no diss to Bruce Springsteen. But as an adult, when I heard his, it was kind of like when I heard Bob Dylan's All Along the Watchtower. I go, how did they get that out of that? They must have just said, oh, let's rewrite the song. It's almost like rewriting. It's beyond covering it. It's almost like rewriting it. Yeah, that is a good way to put it. Too bad the uh, the royalties still have to go to the original writer either way. <laughs> <laughs> Another one that you had mentioned on your top five is a band that was kind of, not kind of, they were like an entry point for all these bands that I've kind of grown to love. It was Metallica, Bread Fan. Yes. When I was a little kid, once again, my older sister, she listened to a band called Budgie. I never understood Budgie. Didn't hate him, but the guy had a more nasal voice than Billy Corgan or, or Getty Lee. And my sister would play Bread Fan. And I had a hard time listening to it because he went, Bread Fan, open up your mouth, open up your mouth. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't sound like the guy from Cheap Trick or the guy from Judas Priest, you know? Uh, so I thought it was an okay song. It rocked and Boy, when Metallica put it out in the 80s, I knew the song, and I go, holy shit, that's how you want to do that song. And then sure enough, Metallica, in my opinion, became the best metal band to do a bunch of killer covers. So, you know, anybody that can make it better than the original, you're already doing well. And I think Metallica did that with that Budgie song. Uh, no offense to Budgie fans, but the Metallica one to me was better. Oh, yeah. They did another one, too, that Crash Course. And brain I love I love Metallica's cover of that. It is excellent. The original's good too. Um, but God, the Metallica one is so raw and in your face. It's like you just want to drink beer and smoke a joint when that when that riff comes on. <laughs> Another guy that I do this podcast with, my friend Brent, his phrase for that is he's gonna punch drywall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I remember when we were little kids and we got our uh, we got our driver's licenses, you know. I think at 15, because we, we lied and said that we needed a special permit or something. And my friend would play Garage Days in his tape deck, and he would bang on the uh, on above the stereo on the dashboard real hard when he'd come on. He's so excited, you know. And, and I would laugh at, at, at how crazy he would get. But looking back, that was the power of music, and it still is, you know. And it, it, at 15-year-old, driving a car with that riff off of off of Garage Days pumping, yeah, you're going to bang on the dashboard. Like Wayne's World. Dude, totally, it was totally that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so another one, your fifth one that you had on that post was Van Halen's You Really Got Me. Yeah, I think that's an obvious one. And yeah. unlike those other ones, I'm going to say that the Kinks one is about equally as good. And for this reason alone, I think the Kinks one came out in the mid-60s or something like that. And that's powerful as fuck for that time. The Kinks one is great. I don't know if I'd call the Van Halen one better, 
I guess maybe the guitar solo maybe makes it almost better, but oh, the Kinks were kicking ass back then. But they didn't even use the term heavy or hard rock back then. I don't think it was just called rock and roll. Oh but yeah, they distorted their guitars before other people. I read. I read that they would take razor blades to their speakers because you know when amplifiers back then were made, it was to play cowboy songs and clean pretty chords and sound like you know, whatever the music of the time was. And the kinks were like, no, we want the guitar to go ga 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 So they found a way. There was no distortion pedals back then. So that, yeah, that's an innovative band right there. I mean, obviously Van Halen is killer at doing covers, but that's probably one of their best ones. I'm kind of drawing a blank. Was that there? Was that like one of their first songs that they uh, put out? I think so. I was a little kid. I, I found out about, about Van Halen through older brother and sister once again. And yeah, that must have been one of their first songs released, I'm guessing. So it probably like blew people's minds back then, too. Oh, the guitar sound alone. Guitars didn't sound like that before Van Halen won. Guitars were still a little bit psychedelic and, and fuzzy. Of course, Judas Priest was already kind of going that way. But, you know, you either had a clean, pretty guitar or you had an ugly, fuzzy, you know, cool Black Sabbath guitar sound. And Edward Van Halen was like, okay, I'm going to take... But he he was a nut. He must have been from another planet. He figured out how to make the guitar sound like that. We're talking about covers of other artists. Well, you also put out um, a couple of years ago in 2020, your band Heaven Below like released a covers album. And what was the idea behind that? We had a little bit of success with a couple other covers before this album. We did a cover of Pat Benatar's Heartbreaker back in 2010. And people started streaming it a lot and liking it. And um, I've always loved Pat Benatar back when I was a little kid. When she was on MTV, I thought she was a badass back then. I was always annoyed that she wasn't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet, but that's another story. So when we messed around in the rehearsal room, we started doing Heartbreaker because I, I like to play Pat Benatar and sing Pat Benatar songs. So once that got attention, we tried something else. We, um, we did a cover of Rush... Um, subdivisions and William Shatner did a, an appearance on it because I played on his album. He hired me to play on his record through a producer friend of ours. And he told me at the end of the session, uh, Patrick, uh, let me know if you ever need uh, any of my assistance or uh, anything on your, on your record. And then six months later we covered subdivisions and I told my drummer, who's going to say subdivisions. And I was like, Oh my God, I know who's, I know who's going to say it. Let me, let me get on the phone. And inside of less than an hour, we had William Shatner agree to do it. And of course that got a ton of attention with the rush fans and the fan sites and everything. So years later, some, somebody said, well, why don't you put all the covers on one album? And I said, no, let's do better. Let's do uh, covers from all our favorite heroes that have left us. And, uh, and we'll make a, a full album like that. And um, the first disc is all people who have left us. The second disc was all the previous covers we'd recorded over time, whether we were just screwing around or doing it for, for real. And that's how the whole Rest in Pieces thing came together. Well, that's awesome because I had listened to it online. And so, yeah, I just got the Rest in Pieces half. And then when I bought it, is how I heard, I guess, basically a whole nother album of covers. Somebody made a joke, said, oh, those are the missing pieces. And I go, hey, that's a great title. <laughs> Let's call that the missing pieces. That's the second disc. And uh, yeah, that way you get like all our covers at once. I was uh, trying to do a vibe like how Metallica did on Garage Incorporated. One disc was new covers and one disc was all the covers they had done. 
And I always thought that was so cool. So I was excited to do it with us. I was just thinking that that was going through my head. So it's kind of cool that that's where your head was going with that too, kind of bringing together everything you've ever done. Um, as a Absolutely. Point. I only rip off the best artists. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to open the Rest in Pieces record with We Will Rock You because we challenged ourselves as a band. We said, what's the biggest hard rock song of all time? And of course, you start naming all these songs that a million people have covered. And and uh, We Will Rock You was no different. We go, that's a huge song and it's got a ton of covers. And then we said, well, then we have to challenge ourselves and make it sound like not everybody else. And so I came up with that opening riff. I kind of I kind of fool myself into if Judas Priest were to cover We Will Rock You, which they wouldn't. But if they did, how would it go? How would the beginning of it start? And so in the rehearsal room, I just played that. I was like, that's kind of like they would do it. And then it kind of grew from there. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So you use your favorite groups to figure out how they would do your favorite covers. It's kind of a little just a mind game you play with yourself with your guitar on, you know, and you just go, oh, that's maybe how they would do it. And that kind of sets you off into a direction at least. Yeah, because that's even what you said. It was like, how would Allison Chains go about covering Judas Priest? Oh, yeah. And Desert Plains, to me, as a song, the way we did it anyway, it fits right in with a 90s MTV Unplugged sound, which isn't something you would think of, but those are two of my favorite bands. So in my head, I just thought, I just said, how would they mesh that together? From Desert Plains, I bring you love. I dig that cover. Oh, thanks, man. I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to the guy that recorded it. It's <laughs> <laughs> so how did you choose some of the songs that you did? Like, well, you already mentioned, like, We Will Rock You. But how did you decide which songs to do from each band? Is it like a band decision or did you just pick them? No, it was a band yeah. decision. Everybody everybody liked the idea of the deceased artists. And, and so everybody threw something in. Our bass player, John, said, we got to do a Ramon song. And that's how we ended up doing Somebody Put Something in My Drink. I, I remember if it was Nikki or who said, we have to do an ACDC song. And I said, well, everybody does ACDC. But, you know, we lost Bon Scott uh, long ago and we lost Malcolm not that long ago. I said, we have to do ACDC. You're right. And um, it was a band group decision. And we made a list of everything. And of course, we wanted to put, you know, Randy Rhodes stuff and Cliff Burton stuff and a Scott Weiland STP. But, you know, there were so many greats. We, we whittled it down to the ones that are there. It was kind of cool, the songs that you chose, because some of them aren't like, like you've got Dio, Hungry for Heaven, but it's not one somebody would think of instantly when you think of Dio. So it's kind of cool how you did kind of like, I guess, deeper cuts. Yeah, that was our that was our bass player. John said that when I said I said, no, dude, we got to do we rock, we rock. And we were like, oh, OK, you're right. That is a great song. Hungry for Heaven. And um, we just tried it and it just sounded good when we were playing it. So we thought, you know what? Who cares if it's not the biggest song? It's the one that we like to play. Well, hell yeah. Nice. Um, I didn't even know that that was like a Ramon song that uh, somebody put something in my drink. It's been covered by some great people, um, but we kind of did our version of it, and that's what it was fun. I said, let's approach it like if we were going to ride it, I think it would kind of go like this. It kind of sounds more like something like uh, 
we were saying owning covers or like rewriting them as your own. It sounds like that, like you guys straight up kind of made it your own. It sounds more like a like a barroom brawl song or something. Yeah, some of the songs felt that way. And then other ones like the ACDC, we were like, no, there is no reinventing ACDC, at least not with this song. So it depended on which song it was, whether or not we reinvented or, or stayed true to the original. There's one that stands out to me, too, from The Missing Pieces is Major Tom. That's an old cover in terms of that was, I think that might've been one of our first covers we did. And I, I just always liked that song when I was a little kid and I heard it on MTV. And I always thought the keyboard could be guitar. And so we just figured out the keyboard part on guitar and then off we went with it. Oh, wow. Because, yeah, I I guess I've kind of forgotten about that song. And then hearing it as your cover was kind of like hearing it for the first time. And it kind of reminded me of like back when I was in high school and you had like Orgy covering Blue Monday and Power Man 5000. It sounds... It sounds like of that era, so kind of... That's, that's, that's my era I come from, so yeah, I guess it wasn't a stretch. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Union Underground, but I just mean, it sounds like it really captures that era really well. So. Oh, thank you, thank you. I, I remember when that Orgy cover came out, and I, I've always loved it. I thought it was killer when they did that Blue Monday. That was killer. I was like 14 then, so that's when I was getting into just whatever was on the radio at the time. Hell yeah, that, that was a good era right there. Out of all the bands that you covered across the two discs, and we've already talked about Judas Priest, that was one of your favorites, but I guess you covered Pantera. Are you a fan of them being from uh, Texas too? Yeah, huge Pantera fan. Another band that I saw every tour. I saw them in 1992 on the vulgar display of power, and they blew me away. I vowed to see them every tour I could, and I, I did. I, I saw them every tour. And um, that one was really fun musically. But for me, I thought, wow, I'm going to do Phil Anselmo vocals. Uh, and, and people like the way I sound on it. But it was uh, a little bit outside my wheelhouse because, you know, it's all aggressive vocals. But I ended up having a lot of fun recording the vocal for that one. It's just about energy. It's not about perfection. And that, that made it really fun. I know you were like a guitar player. We mentioned Union Underground and all your guitar influences, but how did you know you wanted to be a singer? Is that something that you always wanted to do? And you, I did. I always wanted to, but you got to remember, I, I grew up as a kid in the 80s and then high school in the 90s. Um, I was so into guitar. Whenever I played with other people, it, it always seemed like, well, the singer had to be some good-looking guy. Not that I wasn't good-looking, because I, I was and I am. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but the, the guitar was my sword. The guitar was my weapon. The guitar was my, my blanket, my security. Um, to do a stand-up vocal would be crazy. But because I could always sing all bands I've ever been in, the singer and the other band members said, hey, can you sing that harmony? You know, in an album like Dirt really taught me how to how to do harmonies as best as I could. So by the time 2010 rolled around or 2008, I thought, you know what? I, I can sing. I'm already, I always get a lot of confidence from everybody complimenting my vocals. It's time to sing. It's not about uh, a blonde haired, pretty singer anymore. And, um, and the state of music kind of dictated that a little bit for me. You know, you had killer bands like Seether coming out. 
um, all these cool bands. And I thought, yeah, I can, I can sing because I've already been shredding guitar for a long time. Let me try this. This is a new challenge. And not that the guitar takes back seat, but the vocals uh, were a new challenge. And so it took me years just to get it where I am now. But, you know, you're always learning. You know, I hear somebody like Chris Cornell or Corey Taylor, and I'm like, oh, yeah, those guys are real singers. <laughs> you know, So I'm still aspiring to be of that caliber. I guess it's like finding your voice, right? Yeah, holding yeah. holding the notes. Holding the notes is one thing. I've always been able to sing in key and in pitch yeah. and, and everything. But as you record your own music and you record your voice, you're like, okay, do, do I want to sound like this? Am I trying to be more like that? You come to find out that the trying part isn't what you do. It's just being yourself. And I try to do that. But honestly, doing these covers helps you as a singer a lot. Even if you're finding your own voice, you'll you'll say, oh, this song is really comfortable to sing like this. Oh, that one song is hard on this one part, so I'm going to work on this. And sure enough, it's like anything else. You just hone your skill by doing it. I never thought I would be singing Judas Priest or Pantera. Even Lincoln Park, I didn't know I was going to sing that, but just I made it my own, and uh, just it's it's one of those things you just try to keep working at it and have confidence while you're doing it. Did you ever take lessons for either vocal lessons or guitar? I took a ton of guitar lessons. I had a, a world-renowned teacher who's an amazing guy named Ron Jarzombek, whose brother comes from a musical family. One of the guys played with Rob Halford, all this stuff. And Ron Jarzombek played in a band called Watchtower that influenced Metallica. And that was a game changer for me. Um, my mom would buy me the guitar instructional tapes like the Paul Gilbert on VHS when I was, you know, I wanted to shred. Once I learned oh, how rhythm worked, I was like, man, I want to shred fast and accurately. And so I did all that. I did the lessons. Um, as far as vocal lessons, not really. I never really took any lessons. I played with a lot of singers who needed vocal lessons. <laughs> 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 and that in itself was a lesson <laughs> but no i i I, uh, I i try to just stay on top of it it's a muscle it's something you can't just just blow off for six weeks and then start singing um i, I pick up a gu acoustic guitar all the time and i still sing you know lately i've been putting it on social media i'll learn a queen song or or something that i've wanted to learn and then i'll sing it and uh, it, it sometimes it's a song that I never thought I could sing, but I just keep working at it until it sounds like I want it to sound. Oh, cool. How's it going with guitar lessons? I saw that you posted you're going to teach. Yeah, the people at Schechter have been uh, really awesome. I have a, a signature guitar coming out this year. And because of their help and people come to me always wanting lessons, I've realized, oh, my gosh, well, I can actually do some lessons while I'm off the road and help people. And it's been going great. I uh, I used to give lessons in the 90s a lot after the shred days and all that kind of thing. And then I got away from it as Union Underground took off and stuff like that. I'm loving it, though, because it's inspiring hearing somebody go from just playing open chords to suddenly being able to play songs. And I love facilitating that. I, I really enjoy giving people that confidence that I got from other teachers. You know, when a, when a teacher tells you, holy shit, you learn that fast. Now let's go ahead and do this. I didn't know you were going to learn that so quick. That's that's the confidence that that we need as musicians, and it makes us play better. And I love I love giving that energy because I got so much of that when I was coming up. Oh, awesome! It's like giving back. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 a good thing to do, and I enjoy doing it. I got a couple other questions for you too. Hypothetically, if you're going to release 
the Rest in Pieces album now in 2023, what Foo Fighters song would you cover? It would definitely be off the, uh, I was going to say the first Foo Fighters, but that's not what Taylor played on. So he didn't play on the color and the shape either. When did Taylor Hawkins play on a Foo Fighters album? Was it, uh, all my life I've been searching for something, something. He played on that one. Maybe, maybe it'd be that one. Maybe it'd be all my life. Yeah, what's that, one by one? One by one, yeah. That would be a choice for sure. Um, he technically didn't play on the recording of Everlong, so I would do something that he played on. Oh, there's a lot of good tracks. Um, but that's the first one that comes to my head is, is that all my life. I think that that would be, if I had to name one, that would be my favorite Foo Fighters album. Oh, nice. We talk about doing a sequel to Rest in Pieces, we, uh, jokingly, and we keep saying we're going to call it I Hear Dead People. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody says, that's not a very nice title. Yeah. I said, I don't know. Um, honestly, we're super covered out right now. So we're working on 12 all new original songs. Yeah, I've seen some of those kind of like sneak previews you've been posting in your stories. Yeah, we're not even quite halfway through, but in this day and age, you know, not everybody gets to put out an album like Metallica where they're like, surprise, it's Monday, and everybody has the sees the album right here. But when you're a newer emerging band, you have to uh, let people come along for the ride. So that's why we've been showing little teasers and showing me in the studio. That way people feel vested to it. You know, they're like, hey, that's that song that I told him he should put on the album, or, or that's that song I told him not to put on the album. <laughs> It is. It's like little breadcrumbs. Like, here you go. Here's the next little piece. Yeah, and it's, it's not all teasers. As a matter of fact, I'm going to put up some more stuff on social media of other songs. We think we have the 12 songs, but maybe, you know, we actually have more. Maybe we'll ha have people help us decide which, which ones make it and which don't. Oh, cool. So are you going to do that kind of new like model of, like, releasing a single every, like, four or five weeks? Or are you just going to... No, I... I want to be different, obviously. We're going to do something cooler. Um, I'm trying to put it together now with the powers that be. We have these coffin kits that we put out sometimes that are real wooden coffins with all these merch and goodies inside. Sometimes it's a DVD or sometimes it's a CD. I think we're going to put out a four-song EP that has four songs from the full-length album, but you only get it if you buy the coffin first. The coffin's pricey, but it comes with a lot of cool stuff. And, um, you know, when people spend so much money at our merch store, we see all that. We don't, we don't have a company that like handed us a, a blank check. We actually do it ourselves and hire people to help us. So I want to, I want to make it so that somebody goes, you know what? I've bought all their merch and I got this cool, crazy thing. Not even Kiss and Metallica do that. I want to be able to say that. So we're working towards a special thing for the for the initial release before the full length comes out i don't know if i want to put out a song every six weeks that's a little excessive but i might change my mind <laughs> we'll see <laughs> i think that's cool like uh because you do have cool merch and you're uh, yeah. you're the guy that's actually like sealing the envelopes and everything when i can we have some people that help us and we're on nikki and i are on the road but we do get involved we, we know the names and we see stuff and we are blessed that sometimes we have to hire outside help to help us finish. And I tell, I tell the, the rest of my band, I say, you know how awesome that is? I've already been in a band where somebody gives you a check and then they take half the money and you wait six months to get paid. I don't want to do that anymore. Well, I respect your like a do-it-yourself operation. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. That way you don't have a bunch of people telling you what you're supposed to do. You just have yourself feeling what you should do. And um, yeah, I come up with ideas because I'm a fan. I look at... Metallica and ACDC and Alice in Chains and 
I, I see stuff, I go, ooh, that's so cool. Or I go, ooh, how come they didn't do this? You know, so I try to apply it to my own band. When you were getting into music, what was your first album? Let's see, because I was the youngest kid, I remember having a bunch of albums, but the first one that was mine personally, where my mom got it for me, because I asked, I remember getting Shout at the Devil in 1983. That was my record, because I saw Looks That Kill on MTV. But I do remember my mom getting me Point of Entry from Judas Priest, which came out before it, so maybe it was Point of Entry. I remember getting Diary of a Madman. That must have been 1982. I was a little kid. It was something in there. It was stuff like that. It might have been Point of Entry, Diary of a Madman. Oh, I remember getting Number of the Beast. That was 1982 also. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really hard to say. I yeah. thought I had my own copy of Cheap Trick at Budokan, but looking back, it might have been my sister's. It was something killer. Yeah. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Are there a lot of albums that buying them back then, like you were kind of like drawn to the image and you Absolutely. got it, whether it was good or not, you just had to get... I remember at a convenience store by my house... Um, I had a little bit of money and I, I rode my bike and they had an album from Blue Oyster Cult. It was called Some Enchanted Evening and it looked like an Iron Maiden album on the cover. It had a, a skeleton guy riding a horse with a cross and I bought it and I took it home and I was disappointed at first because it had that hit, slow hippie sound. <laughs> now, as an adult, it's a killer album. Floyster Cult's amazing. But, you know, as a little kid, I wanted it. I wanted everything to sound like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. But, you know, you got to get a little older to realize some other stuff is great. Yeah, I'm the same way. You just kind of kind of triggered a memory. Uh, like we were talking about Metallica, too. And that's one of my favorite Metallica covers is that astronomy cover of Blue Oyster Cult. I love it. I know exactly which one you're talking about on Garage Inc. It's a really killer. Yeah, but then I was like, okay, I'm going to go get into Blue Oyster Cult, try to track down all these songs that they covered. And I... I remember being like turned off because it was, it was like hippie sound. And it's, if you listen to it now, um, and I know I, I put on Blue Oyster Cult. It's awesome. I want to play some Blue Oyster Cult on acoustic. You know, I want to learn some of it. It's so cool. It has cool lyrics. It has cool chord changes, you know, and I guess as a little kid, we don't know. We see Blue Oyster Cult with afros and sunglasses on the back. <laughs> you know, I'm like, are they a R&B band? You know, but that doesn't matter. You get older and you start to realize greatness either way yeah yeah um i even just saw him last summer um nice with a friend of mine nice but, uh, but yeah i think it's just something where i was like 14 and i was like yeah man i'm i guess just like you i want everything that's heavy but it doesn't mean it's not good if it's not heavy yeah and i'll be i'll be the first to tell you even though i'm a judas priest nut i i'm not a big fan of rockerola and some people go how could you say that um, Rockarola sounds kind of hippie blues bar band. And I realize, and I like Never Satisfied and the title track Rockarola, One for the Road. But dude, you put on Sad Wings of Destiny, their second album, and that sounds like Satan has entered the room, you know, comparatively. <laughs> so to me, I, I don't care if people judge me. I think Sad Wings of Destiny is the first real Priest album, in my opinion. That's just me. Well, that's kind of why I'm drawn to all of your uh, social media posts and even like uh, talking about your uh, choices for covers is because it seems like you're genuinely a fan of just every band that you talk about. You know, you're genuinely a fan and you can like tell that. It seems like you're like a defender of stuff too, like albums that are like unsung or, you know, that get bashed. You're like right there, like defending them. And I think that's cool. 
Thanks. Yeah. You know, having done the Union Underground thing and some of the stuff I've got to experience, I learned about the industry a lot. And it's not that certain albums aren't good. Maybe the industry didn't promote them or maybe MTV wasn't playing that at that time or maybe the radio station didn't like uh, something that was too heavy or whatever. So, yeah, I guess I do defend stuff because... Uh, I tell a lot of people the only reason you don't like something or haven't heard of it is because the industry hasn't let you yet. Um, and that's not to say I'm like some underground punk rock guy. I just, I just, yeah, there are some killer albums out there. I don't care if they sold one copy or one billion copies. It might be a great album. Um, or I think everybody else online too, like you see stuff like in the comment sections and stuff, everybody's like acting like they're like a gatekeeper and you're just out there opening the gates instead. Like, Hey man, this is cool. Yeah, there's albums I really dislike, too, but I don't like to go around and, and wave the hate flag. You know, I'd rather concentrate on the, the good stuff, you know. Between you and me, I think Ripper Owens is a killer singer. I wasn't that into those albums with Ripper Owens. They didn't feel like Judas Priest to me. They're good albums, but, um, you know, you just you go with your heart. You lead with your heart on stuff like that. And if, uh, you know, somebody wants to say it's crappy, well, let them. Maybe we like it. Maybe we don't. Yeah, um, or I thought it's something from like a Beavis and Butthead album. I think he's like, like you got to have stuff that sucks so you know like what's good. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. And you know when you have al- when you have artists like Judas Priest or ACDC or Aerosmith or with these lengthy careers, dude, not everything's gonna be painkiller. Not yeah. everything's gonna be Aerosmith rocks. Not everything's gonna be Back in Black. You know, it, 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 it ebbs and flows. It, it, it goes up and it goes down and it moves around and you take you go for the ride. Yeah, not everybody's batting a thousand. Well, Pantera kind of did once they got Phil, but what is that, four albums? You know, four or five albums? Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's once again, you know, reinventing the steel was not vulgar, but it was still kick-ass. Oh, yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. I love that last album. Yesterday Don't Mean Shit and... Uh, What's that song on there? We'll grind that axe for a long time. Killer track. Yeah. Love it. Goddamn electric. Yes. See, Pantera with Phil at their at their lull or not their highest point is still kick-ass. So that was really saying something. Or even speaking about that, recently you just posted something else. Here's four good albums uh, people said are good, but they're actually great. Yeah, yeah. They were albums that got a lot of criticism from either the industry, quote-unquote, or fans. And um, it was Metallica's Load. Yeah, yeah. And I like Load. And it's nothing like Master of Puppets or Justice or even the Black Album. But I still like it because Metallica kind of said, they clearly must have said, let's let's do something else. And so they jammed. And it has a good vibe. It's just a good album to put on. Um, and... They get so criticized, but that's because people think they want to hear Master of Puppets recorded 50 times. I wouldn't want to do that either if I was Metallica. <laughs> and then, uh, what was another one? Oh, I love the Motley Crue album with John Karabi. And I get a lot of shit for that. People said, that's not Motley Crue. They should have called it something else. Yeah, I don't care what package it's in. I just listen to it. And if it rocks my world, then it rocks. And that album rocks. And I guess the industry and the the time they released it, you couldn't be Motley Crue back when Pearl Jam and, and all this stuff was doing their thing. So I don't give a fuck. I think it's a great album. Like both of those are Bob Rock produced albums too. Yeah, yeah. He had yeah. his he had his finger on the pulse for capturing the sonic qualities and making it work. And um, 
you know, I don't care that that album from Motley Crue wasn't huge. I, I do get annoyed that, that Nikki Six doesn't, he acts like it doesn't exist, and that annoys me as a fan, but maybe I'm weird. I don't know. Um, well, there's still an audience for it, because they did a, I think John Karabi did like a whole bunch of shows uh, just doing that album in its entirety. Yeah, I wanted to go to the whiskey, but I was out on tour with Lita. But um, you know what? I don't care what anybody says. I like we like what we like, so that's that. <laughs> well, hell yeah, because uh, yeah, that's I love Load and Reload, and I always get so much shit for that with some of my friends. But I don't care. Yeah, exactly. It was a vibe. You know, sometimes it doesn't yeah. need to be a song that's on the radio for to be. Sometimes it's not supposed to be Inner Sandman or Disposable Heroes. Sometimes it's supposed to be something else. Yeah. I got another question for you. Here's just a silly one. A Super Bowl's coming up. I know the Cowboys, they lost um, the other day, but you got anybody else you would pick uh, to win the I'm Super Bowl? I'm not a big football fan. I guess I like the Cowboys, but it's only by, by association with all my friends and family. Uh, I'm more of a basketball guy. I like the Spurs and the Lakers, and I feel like basketball is better to watch because it's not so intermittent stop and go. But I was hoping the Cowboys would get to the Super Bowl because I don't think they've been there since the 90s. So <laughs> I think they're the underdogs. They've, they've taken over for the Raiders as being the underdogs. Yeah, what was that? Troy Aikman, Emmett Smith back then? Yeah, yeah. I want to say 97 was the last time they won a Super Bowl. I might be wrong. Oh, damn. It seems like, it seems like they had been uh, closer before, but it probably has been uh, like that long. They need a new coach. I forget that that famous coach's name they have, but he's not doing it. Good job. They need they need their Bob Rock of coaching. <laughs> <laughs> Man, but seriously, dude, that Bob Rock, he like basically everything he touched there for like 10 years was like awesome. Until St. Anger, then he he got funky with yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe he kind of overreached there, but I can't imagine what it's like to work with Metallica. It must be amazing and difficult at the same time. I do think those new songs that they put out are awesome, though. So I'm really looking forward I, to it. I like that Lux Eterna, however you say it. I definitely like that one. I can't tell if I like the Screaming Suicide yet. I like how James' voice sounds. I think I like the riff. I got to listen to it again. You know, I was just thinking the other day, there's songs that we don't always get right out of the gate. I remember when uh, System of a Down came out, I go, ooh, that's a cool riff. That's heavy. That's cool. And then... Uh, Surge started singing, and I was like, "Oh, I, oh, oh, that's what it does." And then I came around to like to liking it a lot. Actually, <laughs> maybe that newer Metallica song. Maybe I need to hear it a couple more times for it to hit to stick with me. The Screaming Suicide one. Yeah, I just kind of think they both kind of sound almost like I don't know if this makes sense, but like modern, like maybe modern produced Kill 'Em All songs. Exactly why I like them. Yeah, that's why I liked Lux Eterna right away. And somebody was trying to say as if that was a negative. And I, I was like, no, that's a positive. That makes me like it. They will never be the band from Kill 'em All. The hell, they'll never be the band from the Black Album. But, yeah. you know, it, if it hits hard and it has cool riffs and it's got some cool vocals and a cool groove, it's there. That's, uh, there's no, you know, people like to, to analyze everything they do. It's funny, they're the most analyzed band metal band in the history of anything but sometimes you just got to go along for the ride and if you don't like it you get to put on master of puppets again yeah um i think i think talking about yeah batten a thousand their own their only real like maybe misstep yeah was like saying anger i think everything else 
Uh, it's sure yeah, it's I, not the same, but it's great though. Yeah, sometimes it seems like they get caught up making statements rather than just just rocking out. But you know that's that's how they work. You know, sometimes they didn't want a bass guitar on on Injustice for All. I think they were crazy, but that's what they wanted. So <laughs> let them have it. <laughs> well, Patrick, thank you so much for doing this episode with me. I don't want to keep you too much longer. No worries, man. We had a good time doing it. Yeah, we're gonna we're just gonna get back in the studio, keep working on a new record that we're gonna put out this year. It's gonna be twelve songs. It's gonna be all original, no covers. We put out an album a few years ago called Good Morning Apocalypse. It was a concept album, and it got crazy great reviews, and our fan base loved it. And um, we're gonna we're, we're we're making sure that this album lives up to to that or more. So we're uh, we're knee deep in it. We're halfway through. Oh, awesome. So you think it might be like a summertime? That's what I've been telling people. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to bullshit, but it feels like it should be summertime if everything goes, goes how we're wanting. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Kick ass brother. Yeah. We'll have to do another, uh, another podcast before that comes out. Are you doing a lot of dates this year with Lita? Yeah, there's a lot of dates, especially over the summer and part of the fall. And, um, I mean, I'm excited to do that make it happen but it, when i'm not doing that i juggle i do the heaven below stuff in the meanwhile um, all right well thank you patrick so much for talking to me kick ass brother look forward to doing it again